G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 with Neil Johnson on Vision. Uh, We've been saying something is coming for a long time now and with some dismay we know it is on the agenda in the state of Victoria. That is decriminalisation of drugs. In fact, in the ACT they appear to have technically already done it. Opponents say this must be some sort of drug-induced logic. In Victoria, the push is being driven by Fiona Patton of the Sex Reason Party, and now a federal Labor MP has also flagged drug decriminalisation. Well, our special guest today says this is only the tip of an iceberg, and decriminalisation is a major misstep in public health policy. Drug educator Shane Varco, who leads Dalgano Institute, says the significant evidence is ignored, or worse, excised and buried because it doesn't suit the emerging manufacture of consensus being foisted on an increasingly uninformed and weary public. Well, Shane Varco is CEO of Dalgano Institute, one of the 300-plus member organisations of the World Federation Against Drugs. Our absolute pleasure to have Shane back with us today. Shane Varco, welcome back to 2020. Oh, thank you for having me, Neil. As always, a privilege to be with you today. Shane, the drug policy reform uh, seems Mm. to be, uh, you know, loaded uh, with a movement towards decriminalisation of drugs. You can almost feel it uh, when you see various news and current affairs items around drugs. You can sort of feel this momentum, this push to decriminalisation, something no doubt you're thinking through very, very seriously. Oh, indeed, Neil. It's a concern. This is not a, a new advent. It's a, it's the latest iteration in a in a series of pushes. I think early '90s we saw another major push to do this around <coughs> excuse me around the country, particularly in Victoria, and it uh, it fell short because uh, there was uh, some reason prevailed. And back then, in the '90s, just to give you some context, there was a that was when a lot of heroin overdose do, death, sorry, overdoses were happening and people were dying. And at that stage, uh, Dr. Pennington had made a public statement in the media that if we don't have an injecting room in Victoria, there'll be literally thousands of dead bodies on the streets and it's going to be horrendous and we need to do this to save lives. Of course, the police at that stage said, look, we're going to push for supply reduction. Let's do some diversion and re-education. And there was also a heroin glut at the same time, interestingly, globally. Uh, so a heroin shortage. Uh, and so what happened was they didn't do the injection back then. They did the supply reduction. They did the diversion. Deaths from heroin overdose plummeted. Heroin use declined at that stage. And it was horrific at that stage. So we saw that that was averted then. But, of course, there's been a push along the way ever since. And, of course, the, the, the agenda is not about saving lives or or stopping poor drug users from being inappropriately uh, uh, punitive actions taken against them. There's a much more sinister agenda behind all this, Neil. 
Uh, let me just uh, throw a little bit of a, a curveball in here, Shane. Mm. Uh, interesting because when I was preparing for our conversation today, I thought I'll do a Google search and uh, see what people are saying so far as the consequences of drug abuse. And uh, on that Google search, uh, most of the articles that came up top of the pile appeared to be ones that said, uh, you know, drug decriminalisation, uh, no evidence that there's going to be any increased drug taking. And and I thought that is flying in the face of where I anticipated our conversation would go today. And when I spoke to someone in the office, they said, uh, you know, I've found that when I use Google, I'll find there's a lot of things that come up that go along with the sort of narrative that push uh, the sorts of things that we're talking about here. Uh, whereas if you use some other search engines, you might actually get a more accurate response or at least a balanced response when it comes to uh, what sort of information you're looking for. I don't know whether you've ever considered this, uh, but uh, is that an issue? The way that algorithms work, does it yeah. work, in fact, in favour of... Uh, the you know the current mantra around decriminalisation of drugs. Of course. Well, again, when it comes to algorithms, it's all about search applications, and again, it's not about it, it's it's about the minority being able to push in a particular agenda. So, if you've got a well-funded uh, pro-drug act- activist group, which they are incredibly well-funded, and Open Society is a big funder of most of these agendas, and you've got people actively, literally, on, trolling all day long searching and making comments, then the algorithm picks up on that. And that's not saying that Google's you know, promoting their agenda. It's simply following the, the narrative that's being crafted. And, when you, and so when you have that constant mantras being re- reiterated online, like the war on drugs has failed, the war on drugs has failed, decriminalisation won't increase drug use. It, 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 it's, drug use is a health issue, not a crime issue. You keep throwing those up. And of course, the... the the algorithm follows that that specific search pattern, and then literally regurgitates what's being said. But you're right when you start to look beyond um, beyond those superficial actually aspects, and so is social media, of course, and then the amount of people that are involved is very very small. But they are prolific in what they do. The the outlook, for example, drug use in Australia. We know you take cannabis out, then there's about 95 plus percent of Australians. Uh, don't use illicit substances. You put cannabis in, it's uh, around 85% of Australians don't use illicit substances. So that's not reflected in Google searches. So 85% of people literally uh, don't care about the issue, so therefore don't search on it unless they're affected by the, within their families. So again, the searches for issues outside of that or contrary to that are just not there. So again, the, the math is quite simple when you have that in place. And, of course, the pro-drug act- activists are relentless in their agenda to deconstruct, you know, certainly culture and, and substance use is a clear part of that. And, again, not for the well-being of those caught in the tyranny of, of addiction, but for a liberalisation and a freefall of, of culture in, into to drug use. And that's, that's one of the clear agendas behind all this. Some listeners will have picked up your mention of what's called open society and uh, where the funding comes because, you know, you're saying uh, these agendas towards decriminalisation are well-funded and uh, open society, that was an organisation that was founded by uh, the billionaire socialist uh, George Soros. Uh, how influential do you think he has been in this decriminalisation process? 
Oh, certainly. I don't want to spend a lot of time on, on Mrs. Morris's activities, but they're well documented globally, um, and even the secular media have uh, picked up on, on his influence around the world. And Open Society is, is a... Look, it, it has some leg- um, humanitarian aspects to it, but again, it's essentially a... Uh, basically a laissez-faire community model. And they they, they couch their, their funding in all sorts of you know humanitarian terms, of course, but yeah... It is a very clear uh, a push, and and a lot of the groups that are funded, and there are literally three hundred plus different groups around the world that are funded, and many of them are, are, are pro drug activists, or they want to see drug policy liberalised and normalised drug use, and not necessarily promote drugs to be commercialised, but they certainly want to normalise drug use and culture, and uh, they are well funded by that. In fact, in two thousand sixteen. Uh, Mr. Soros's uh, agencies collectively threw millions of dollars at the United Nations uh, General Special Assembly on on drug policy to try and shift the narrative internationally into a more liberal uh, agenda. So clearly, it's not not a hidden agenda. It's nothing you know surreptitious about it. It's very open, very clear. And unfortunately, a lot of people are getting well funded. You can imagine you got your paid activists are paid sixty or hundred thousand dollars a year just to to write articles for this end and create the narrative that they want, and they, uh, you know, they get qualified through agencies funded by by the open society as well. So all those things are there, and it's not conspiratorial; it's just a reality. It's an open open agenda, and uh, unfortunately, that kind of um, capacity gives leverage in the culture, particularly a culture that's obsessed with social media and uh, the, the faux narratives that can be created. And fact and evidence are always. Always casualties of that. In fact, there's a new term, Neil. I don't know if you, the, the, your listeners have heard this, but the term is called anecdata, and it's a kind of an emerged term where it's not just pure anecdote, but it's anecdote used in a data context to try and give it legitimacy. So that's the new space. Now, if we use that anecdata, we're seen as unscientific. But of course, those uh, in the agenda of for the agenda of liberalising drug use can use anecdata quite liberally and uh, get by with it. So it's fascinating to watch those kind of censorships that happen in in the uh, even in the scientific journal space so it's, it's interesting to watch that narrative emerge as well anecdata and social media go hand in hand and uh, of course uh, the uh, uptake of uh, people using the digital world uh, on social mm-hmm. media and especially young people uh, getting that as their news source, uh, particularly vulnerable to pick up on some of these uh, ways of thinking about what the narrative is. Uh, what yeah. are your thoughts here for, uh, for you know, there might be parents listening, you've got teenagers, and uh, teenagers around the dinner table are saying, uh, you know, oh, marijuana should be de- decriminalised, or what about all these other drugs, and all the evidence is that uh, there won't be any harms, and there'll be no extra, you know, people taking drugs, and there'll be more people getting treatment. What what are your thoughts here for uh, for you know how you might sort of navigate that world? Yeah, look, it's interesting when when you I think most people one one good thing about what's happened in the last probably two years and there's a the, the democratization of what they call the democratization of data. Everybody has an opinion and now it can be broadcast and so and people jump on uh, like all of us we we tend to gravitate with what they call confirmation bias. We gravitate to to data and information that suits our narrative. So, you know, the conservatives will, will lean towards conservative data, the progressive so-called progressives will lead progressive data, the, the anarchists will lead to anarchist data. So we, we understand that. That's that's kind of human nature. We, As I say in a lot of the things I write, 
people, few, very few people wander further than shouting distance from their echo chamber. And so, and we're all guilty of doing that. But the idea is to actually, it, for young people, is to actually educate them in how to search out what actually is going on. And I think the conversation should always start with, okay, where'd you get that information from? Who said that? Do you know uh, where they got their source from? Who are they associated with? Just simple interrogations without being adversarial. Say, okay, well, that's interesting. Where'd you get that from? Who are they? What qualifications do they have? What scientific evidence do they use to back that? Is there any scientific evidence contrary to that? And I think they're the questions that you know mums and dads can ask without being experts because that meant that in ensures two things happen. That the, the young person has to then, obviously, if they have any sense of integrity, will say, oh, I, I, I don't know, or I was on this feed. I said, well, check it out. Let, let's check it out. Let's have a look at that. Can you send me the link? And I'll have a look at that as well. And get that conversation going. Or they'll say, oh, okay, well, well, let me have a look at that, and I'll see what there's other data around as well. And I think just bringing the the option into the into the conversation is important. What, what other evidence is out there? Who's saying it? Where did it come from? Why is that the case? And why? And, and and do we know anyone that uses drugs that's actually healthy, functional, and and not always a little bit off? And I think that's another question that needs to be asked. If you said, you got any friends that use drugs? Well, yeah, they, they seem all right. I said, well, do they seem all right? So well, what's their behaviour like? You know, when they're on the gear, when they're off the gear, what's going on? You know, and that, and that, those kind of conversations are really important. And the, the child doesn't have to, the young person, sorry, doesn't have to disclose, you know, relationships, but they, they'll inadvertently do that anyway in that conversation because it's like, well, if they've got any decent relationship with their parents, of course, sadly in our culture we have a lot of parents who are now... Uh, using drugs and their kids are raised in homes where drug use is normal so their idea of drug use and the dysfunction that surrounds drug use that's their life so uh, and, and being neglected is kind of normal uh, even being abused every now and then is kind of normal until they bump into something that's not that and they go wow my life's pretty ordinary so again that that's the tragedy of this kind of uh, in, uh, this immersion that's happening is that people actually begin, the, the normalisation process, people actually begin to believe this is kind of the way it is. And that's a huge tragedy we want to avoid. And, and that's why it's necessary to have, obviously, the narratives around people's drug experience in the marketplace as well, which is another conversation. Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. Shane Varco is our guest. He's CEO at Dalgano Institute. Our talkback line open, 1-800-316-316. Shane, uh, what are the benefits of decriminalisation? Because uh, this is what is being pushed, that it's a wonderful thing for society. And we're not talking just about, as we have times in the past of marijuana, but talking about the decriminalisation of all of those illicit drugs. Uh, what are the, what's the uh, what's the narrative around what the benefits of uh, decriminalisation are? Yeah, the idea, that there's a number of, uh, again, classic memes that drive that particular process. One of the base memes, of course, is the war on drugs has failed. So basically... By keeping drugs criminalised, you have to police that and it's not working, it's not changing anything, it's not bringing anything in, uh, into balance. It just creates criminals out of you know recreational drug users, which is just foolishness. 
it creates a burden on the the the, the justice system, etc., etc., etc. So that kind of negative argument that is always your baseline, and then then of course you have to create that doubt in in the minds of the listener, and then go, we have an option, we have a solution that will fix that. Uh, but at the same time, I have to guard against the idea of open and wanton liberalisation of drugs because even even the the pro drug bad actors know that drug use causes incredible damage to societies even though they might think they've got their drug use under control they see the harms they see the the crime they see the family dysfunction which they bury this data quite aggressively because they don't want that uh, that interfering with their narrative as i said before they exercise any any data or ideas that that compete with the dominant narrative like all of us we we want to create their brand management we want to create a an image and a perspective that people can embrace. We don't want anything that's going to be contrary to the to the wonderful view that we're presenting. So they they do understand that there's a downside to this, and it's it's a shocking and devastating downside. But they've got to play that down. So that's your first protocol. The second is they say, look, well, what we need to do is find a a model that can show that this actually works. So what they'll do is they'll pick on a model like the the Portuguese model. And then they'll throw that around with uh, with you know, abandon as as is to be this great panacea to all ills. Now the Portugal model, and you have to understand, we don't go into the details. And on our website, you'll see we've done a research report on that, and so have uh, the Swedish academics done a research report on the on the Portuguese model, which is also now looking at being reversed. Just interesting by by various people in the country because it is failing. But you understand when when you take a model from another country, you've got to look not just at the the operations and potential outcomes of that, but what are the origins of it? And that's the problem with all these things. Portugal had a drug problem primarily because it came out of a basically, if you like for want of a better word, civil war and a dictatorial government into a into a democratic space. And there was a whole bunch of carnage and damage that was done and drug use emerged in that context. So they had to address that. Now, we don't have that issue in Australia or in the U.S., or in liberal democracies, these these are not the issue. We're not coming out of trauma, cultural trauma, uh, and so therefore that model to decriminalise it wasn't about legalising drugs, wasn't about making them easier to get. They were still criminalised, and there were still actions. It was about diversion. Now this is where the term decriminalisation and legalisation get mixed mixed together beautifully, and it's creating that illusion that this is actually a better model. And by decriminalising, we're not legalising drugs, we're not, and they are technically not. But we are basically giving a further pass to the culture to engage in drug use because there is no coercive or a very limited coercive element to change behaviour. Now, coercive elements, and this is the argument of the pro-drug actors, an addicted drug user can't be coerced out of drug use. Well, we know that's not true because we now know from the data from some of the best recovery experts in the world, there's about 3% difference between those who are coercively uh, you know, let out of, out of drug use or those who volunteer to go into rehab. So we know that that's, that's just foolishness. But of course, you have to actually stop the drug use to actually realise you've got a problem. And this is where the coercive measure, measure works. So again, that aside, so we, with the Portugal model... Has it worked to a certain extent in Portugal, but now it's starting to backfire on them. And again, they've not they've not legalised drugs over there, as contrary to the popular opinion. The Dutch are backpedalling on what they did with marijuana. In fact, the, the Dutch premier said to to uh, Trudeau in 2016, 17, I think it was 17, he said this was a mistake. 
legalising marijuana is a mistake. Made a public statement. And so we're seeing that... The Shane, let me just cut in here yeah, for a moment because we're not long out from news and we yeah. can come back to this, but let's take a call. Steve is on the line from Parks in New South Wales. Hi, Steve. Uh, what's your thoughts? Yeah, good day, brothers. Good day, brothers. Yeah, yeah. How are you both? Good, Steve. Good. I'm you, wondering you... if you've seen too... I believe there's a major problem with decriminalising illegal drugs. The, the two is psychosis and depression. And I wondered if you'd both seen, and every one of your listeners seen, two DVD documentaries. They're put out by the Citizens Committee on Human Rights. The first one is aptly named Making a Killing. The second one's name is, uh, of the DVD documentary, it's called Psychiatry, Friend or Foe. And it's about the... Uh, it quotes in one of the two DVDs that there are 31 million prescriptions are being written every year for psychotropic drugs. I believe some are even responsible for the Columbine massacre in the United States. Steve, uh, you're making some important points here. Let's get a response from Shane. Yeah. Look, uh, they, they've heard of both of those. The second one was put out by, uh, uh, I believe the second one was put out by Scientologists. Uh, they have a big anti-drug uh, campaign called uh, Drug Free World. That's their space. Um, I'm not. I'm not familiar with. It. I know of them, um, I'm, I'm, and I know what they do in the public square. We don't have anything to do with their work. We're just aware of it. But I, that documentary I have heard of. Uh, of course, a lot of documentaries coming out at the moment uh, about the opioid crisis in America, dope sick uh, crisis uh, is another one. They talk about obviously the prescription drug problems and the farmers pharmaceuticals uh, behind that and again remember these are just quickly Neil these are legal drugs that are being misused or used recreationally and so this is your problem and, and opioids are incredibly strong toxins you know heroin obviously a, a, a non-pharmaceutical um, <clears throat> advent of, of, of the opium model but this is these are real concerns and so all drug use all drug use is dangerous even the Panadol and overuse of Panadol can do damage to your kidneys so we know all drugs are poisons. So the concern is, why would you want to create a permission model that enables people to engage more in psychotropic toxins that damage you on so many levels? Yeah. Shane, I wonder whether we might spend a few minutes talking about where things are at in Australia. Uh, you're, uh, you're monitoring, observing things that are happening. I might say you're based in Victoria, where this latest push is likely to be strongest. Uh, what are you seeing happening here in Australia? Well, again, it, it's always about the squeaky wheel gets the grease. So, it, again, it's those with a specific agenda. We're not seeing the calls to decriminalisation come from classically... Uh, What's called conservative or even liberal mindsets, where best community health outcomes, best commercial and um, productivity outcomes come from, from any any quarter that concerns itself with the well-being and safety and best practice health options for a community, it's not coming from any of those sectors. It's coming from a very small minority because you've you've got people in, in the public square they, and they've got the capacity to do this. They can make these statements. So it always comes from that particular quarter. And, of course, then they're the ones who drive the, the mantras around, you know, criminalisation. You know, my kids are being criminalised and blah, blah, blah. And, 
and all these kind of things. And they tend to make an argument that seems to make sense, particularly if you base it on the war on drugs as far, which, of course, we need to reiterate for your listeners, Neil, we have never had a war on drugs in this country since 1985. We adopted a harm minimization platform. First one is really one of the first ones in the world to do it, which essentially said we're not accepting drugs as okay, but basically drugs are emerging as a normal part of life. We need to manage them. And so even though demand reduction and prevention are the priority pillar of that three-pillared strategy, and supply reduction is part of that as well, harm reduction, which is an important pillar for those caught in the tyranny of addiction, is supposed to be there to help people ex- exit drug use and not be you know, over, overly punitive, have punitive actions against them. But in what's happened in time is the activists who are pro-drug have hijacked that harm minimization, sorry, that harm reduction platform and overrun the other two. So what we've got now is a, ver- a small vociferous minority who have got in the public uh, places, as I said before, weary and they're overwhelmed and drug use seems to be popping up because the narratives are constantly reiterated in the, in the marketplace. So we need to do something about it. Now, it's interesting that, uh, again, Fiona Patton, Senator Patton, from the Sex Slash Reason Party, uh, again, an interesting <clears throat> name change, but again, she's worked in the, in the sex industry for most of her life, and a recent, uh, a recent agenda with the Victorian lockdowns, where she had some policies put forward to give Premier Andrews further, further power in, in his the lockdown capacities, was to have... And this this can be corrected, of course, fact-checked by people. It needs to be fact-checked that one of the things she got in in for her vote to that end was that basically brothels can be licensed in any neighbourhood in, in Victoria and that there was a, again, this has to be fact-checked, very clear I'm saying that, a, a liquor licence attached to those brothels. So we've got a, a, a person in the, in the sex industry who's, and of course drug use is... is um, inseparable in the sex industry, essentially. So <clears throat> these are kind of the agendas popping up. So these people are now using genuine harm reduction narratives, invoking the tyranny of the addicted uh, as, as a, a means to, to foist a liberalisation of drug use onto the culture and a normalisation of drug use. But they're using a very surreptitious means to do that, and we're calling that out. Shane, would it be a valuable thing to have another war on drugs? As you say, uh, lots of listeners will be familiar, dating back to the mid-1980s, when there was Mm -hmm. a war on drugs and uh, uh, there was a defined narrative that was uh, was counter to uh, the sorts of things we're hearing today. Would that be a good thing to return? Would it be good if one of the political parties uh, that were vying for power at the next election uh, declared that they would have have a war on drugs would that be a good narrative to push i think the, the war on drugs because the meme has been so hammered for so long the the howard government the last time that we saw a significant reduction in drug use and drug harms was under the howard government's tough on drugs strategy in fact they did a a national inquiry into the harms of drug use in our culture and it's called um the winnable war on drugs it's on our website. It was published by the Senate. But, of course, that year, 2007, was the year that Labor got voted in. So that was never taken up. And that particular report is breathtaking in its scope and its depth. And, of course, it does talk extensively about the harms of drug use, not just to the user, but to their families and their communities. 
and that uh, and to, to use a quote, and I'm going to customise it for my purposes by. Um, oh no, I've lost his name. <laughs> the, the famous right. author. Anyway, he said, you know, there are worse things than war, and that is losing a war. Now, just going back to the war and drugs narrative, now it was, it was, Nixon was essentially mis- not misquoted, but hijacked his quote. And of course, America was in a complete disaster with the the cocaine and and crack and issues. But when Nancy Reagan and Ronald Reagan were in, they had the Just Say No campaign, which was mocked by the pro-drug advocates in the recent years. But what people didn't know, there was a 50% reduction in drug use under that campaign. Because from the top down and the bottom up, society went after this. Now, let's juxtapose that with our war on tobacco in this country. We've had a, in one of the few countries in the world, has had a war on tobacco. And we, and so from the top down, Policy, I said this before, I'll say it again now. Top-down policymakers, policy promoters, community, education, media are all on the one page. There's one focus, one message, and one voice, and that is quit. There are no uh, alternative narratives in the marketplace. Well, they're there, but they're not promoted. They're not embraced. Um, we've got this and our national drug strategy. That's we have, we have tobacco, we have alcohol, and we have illicit drugs. Our, our, our strategy for tobacco is quit. Yes, it's difficult. Yes, there is a journey to cessation, but there's only one goal. It doesn't shift. With alcohol, it's now shifting because we've got this moderate mo- model in place. <clears throat> Excuse me, because now we see, just to, just to talk about alcohol, there's six, the latest data coming out of NDARC is $68 billion a year in the harms from alcohol. Now, when tobacco, when the war on tobacco really took off about 10 to 12 years ago, although it was in play for 30 years, when the data came out that $36 billion a year, well, it was about $30 billion a year in damage from cigarettes, and the, the revenue from cigarettes was only $6 billion. So the net community benefit wasn't there, and therefore we removed it. The difficulty with alcohol, of course, is that there is a nighttime economy and other economies around it. So it's around $130 billion, sorry, um, $130 million uh, in, uh, in revenue from, from alcohol. But now we're looking at $68 billion in, uh, sorry, million, sorry, $68 million or billion, $68 million in, um, what's a billion? I can't remember now. Just fact check me on that. But there's, the data's flying everywhere. I'm but sure yeah, there's so a B in front of it somewhere along yeah, the way. Yeah, there's a lot, of, a lot of money involved. Yeah, it's, I'm pretty sure it's a billion. But yeah, it is billion. So there's this huge deficit. And, and now they're starting to look at alcohol and they're starting to rein the alcohol companies in. Yeah, at the same time, the reason I give you that background, at the same time, we've got this narrative of, well, let's unleash more psychotropic toxins that cause as much, if not more, harm than tobacco and alcohol combined. Because the reason why alcohol and tobacco do so much damage, Neil, is because they are legal. They are normalised, socially acceptable drugs that have commercial capacity because of their legislative position. Now, they want to do this with illicit drugs. Now, you can imagine the costing to not just productivity and and, uh, social services, but the health budget. And that's not even considering the family cost, which we have hundreds and hundreds of people that we know that have gone through this with their young ones, their husbands, their wives, their daughters. It is horrendous. And we want to let this off the leash and sanitise it with this decriminalisation talk. So we need to, again, we need to have be tough on drugs. And there's a way of doing that, as we've done with tobacco, but it needs to be our all-of-community endeavour. I think listeners will be hearing loud and clear some common sense 
as you're reflecting those issues, Shane. Hey, there's the USA. Uh, Let's talk about the US for a few moments because in so many things, they're a little ahead of us and we ought to learn some lessons there. But there's a number of states in the US that have gone through a decriminalisation of drugs. Uh, You've been looking at those too. What sort of things can we learn from their experience? Again, depends on which narrative you talk to and listen to. So, for example, when, when Colorado decriminalised and sorry, legalised cannabis, uh, we knew that it wasn't going to be long before they decriminalised and legalised, well, decriminalised other drugs, essentially. Sure enough, it's, it's cannabis is the, is the gateway drug to all other drugs. And forget about the, 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 uh, the contested idea that cannabis is a gateway to harder drugs. We now know policy-wise, you legalise cannabis, all the other drugs will follow. And so that's the agenda behind, and that's what the ACT did, legalised cannabis or decriminalised cannabis. And within 12 months, they were talking about the other drugs. I knew they'd do this. And we challenged them straight away on that. Uh, but what happened in Colorado, within two, three years, they've now decriminalised all, not legalised, but decriminalised all drugs for personal use. Now, Oregon have done the same. And it's interesting to hear some of the data coming out from these places. Like They'll, they'll bring out a data set saying, Oh, you know, since we've decriminalised uh, drug use, we have more people uh, now in welfare and getting homes and blah, blah, blah. And then you ask the question of the data set and how much drug reduction has there been, drug use reduction, or is there an increase in drug use and what are the welfare costs attached to this new setting? Now, you've decriminalised it, so, and the argument is, oh, no, we, we don't have to pay for the cost of policing, but that cost of policing was not only absorbed by the health budget, not sorry, overtaken by the health budget, it's now increased. So now you've got a net benefit that's worse. Now, again, they present the data as if this is giving help, but it also opens up the door for more people to use. And, of course, every substance use, every single episode, is a risk-taking episode for short-term or long-term harm from that substance. And, of course, with each engagement with a psychotropic addictive substance, the potential for, uh, for dependency grows and, consequently, the harms that follow that action, including lack of productivity, uh, absenteeism from work, uh, reckless driving, domestic violence, health decline, mental health issues. It just goes on and on and on. And so when a society says yes to that narrative and is okay with that, we'll just throw health budget at it. Of course, the health budgets are black holes, Neil, they are not productive parts of the community. They are important and necessary and vital, but they don't produce revenue. They take revenue. So who's going to have to pay for that increasing black hole of health care? Now, they said, oh, well, we're going to take the money from criminal justice. Well, that's gone. The criminal justice budget has been absorbed, and now we're still spending more. At least with a coercive mechanism, if we're going to engage a, a, a current drug user... We want to help them exit drug use. And the question we asked of the Oregon model was how many people are exiting drug use? And they can't answer it. None. It's basically more none. They're just taking drugs more safely and they're on the streets anymore. But the drug use is causing the problem and it's continuing to go uh, move forward. Well, I picked up a uh, one anti-drug response uh, while we're talking about all of these consequences. As you say, the criminal justice system, the, the health care, the blowout in health budgets and welfare. Uh, one response I picked up uh, says, vigorous and intelligent enforcement of criminal law makes drugs harder to get 
and more expensive. Sensible use of courts, punishment and prisons can encourage misusers to enter treatment and thus reduce crime. So there's an element in in all of that that uh, is is a certain, to me, that sounds like common sense. Any thoughts here well, on, on, on that absolutely. sort of thing? Absolutely. That's, in fact, what we advocate for. We've, we've, uh, you look at our website, we've... We've talked about retasking the national drug strategy and the national health strategy to away from a punitive model, which we've never advocated for. In fact, Australia doesn't have, using drug courts, secure welfare. In fact, WA, interestingly enough, WA prisons have got, um, which they have drug-specific uh, secure welfare, which we advocate for, that basically ensures that the person uh, is in secure welfare, they're, they're incarcerated, but for the purposes, not of punitive responses, but of helping them exit drug use, getting clean, not just for 28 days, but finding a whole new way forward. It's about develop, building social capital and reinvesting. And that's what the, the law should be used for. We've argued this from day one. Use the coercive vehicle of the law to break in on that, that circuit of drug use. And the circuit break is imperative. As, even as Robert Downey Jr., Iron Man, said beautifully, he said essentially, basically... You know, it's, addictions, are, you know, it can be dealt with. The, the problem is getting started, and I'm, and I'm paraphrasing, but the problem is actually getting started, and it was the criminal justice system that got him to break that cycle. So, and we need that. Now, we don't want to throw people in jail. In fact, there's no one in jail in Australia right now, no one, I can say this boldly, that's in jail simply for smoking a joint or for popping an ecstasy tablet. Not, not, not the case. So it's always about what they do when they use drugs or they're dealing or trafficking in drugs. So the misuse of that data is also problematic in the, in the public's uh, narrative. But the bottom line is, Neil, and, and this is what's important, we believe that these vehicles, with drug courts, which we promote on our website, that the incarceration model is all about secure welfare for rehabilitation and reintegration in society. All these vehicles work. And why would you remove that one tool by decriminalising, remove that tool where you can create diversion mechanisms, re-education mechanisms, and all of society's in that place, why would you remove that? Because you want to make, not to help the person caught in drug addiction, but it's to enable those who want to take drugs to do so with impunity. The narrative has to change, or at least there needs to be an alternative narrative, and uh, we hear this from you, and a special honour to you, Shane Varco, and uh, your team at Dalgano Institute, trying to change the narrative and seeming like a, a voice crying in the wilderness from time to time. But And as you know, the Christian community is so compassionate to those who are going through all sorts of addiction issues. And we'll have, often have uh, guests uh, dealing uh, with the way we uh, approach addiction issues. But uh, there's a narrative that you've got to be able to create. And uh, just to pick up on another quote I just uh, picked up in some of my research, the idea of addiction being a complex physical, psychological, emotional and spiritual disease. Now, uh, let me focus on that word disease for a moment. And I'm sure there's probably people with uh, different ways of uh, being able to uh, assess what a disease is. But uh, is that a relevant way of, of you think, talking about changing a narrative, recognising drug abuse and the decriminalisation of drugs as almost promoting new disease in the community? Well, that's interesting you bring that up because that's one of the narratives we've been working on for a long time. The word disease, disorder and dysfunction are more apt. Uh, drug addiction is one of the, the only diseases that is under complete... 
control of the person who has it. You can't catch drug addiction, although the, arg- the argument about contagions, and we've written on this, we've got a, a very, a very uh, strong evidence-based paper called Drug Use, Stigma and the Proactive Contagions to Reduce Both. And what it does, it looks at the different models of disease, disorder, dysfunction. And if you're going to adopt the disease model, classic disease model, a non-communicable disease, then you have to look at the basic etiology of disease. Now, disease model, just quickly, disease model, all doctors understand this. If you're going to attack a disease, you have to reduce two basic things, reduce susceptibility and reduce exposure. So there are the two basic patterns of disease management. You reduce susceptibility and reduce exposure. So that's so. let's adopt drug use or drug dependency as a disease in the classic sense. Then the question you've got to ask is, does decriminalise reduce exposure or increase it? Does decriminalisation reduce susceptibility or does it increase it? Yeah. So, and it does, it does both, the latter. It, does, it increases both. So if we talk about oh, it's a disease, well... You're going to manage a disease by creating a model that increases exposure and increases susceptibility, and you call that better good health, public health management? Well, we so, might hope that our legislators uh, might yep. be able to hear some common sense uh, when they uh, discuss these sorts of arguments, because as you say, the narrative's very strong uh, for decriminalisation, and there needs to be a stronger narrative uh, in the uh, hearts and minds of parents and communities and churches and uh, needs to make its way into those corridors of power as well. And elections coming up, there's a federal election coming up, uh, there's a Victorian state election coming up at the end of the year and these sorts of things are on the agenda. Uh, people pushing these, we've mentioned some names, uh, there does appear to be and uh, there'll be people on all sides of politics who'd be pushing a decriminalisation agenda, but it does appear to have a stronger weight that comes from the left, uh, the Labor Party and the Greens. Any comment on that that you're able to comment on, Shane? Yeah, well, sadly, unfortunately, it's it's you're right. The Greens, particularly the Greens, they've got a very clear uh, decriminalisation strategy. That they, they, they are unabashedly public about that, and um, they've advocated for all sorts of groups that are actually pro-drug, which is very concerning. Uh, with the Labor, Labor, uh, there are some in Labor that have jumped into that space, but most again tend to buy the narrative of you know compassion and and again harm reduction is an important compassion model for those caught in the tyranny of addiction. But as I'll say it again, the the cynical use and misuse of that platform and that important pillar of the drug strategy by pro-drug actors to hijack that agenda for liberalisation is disturbing. They care little for the welfare of the drug addict, those caught in addiction. They care only that they can use illicit psychotropic toxins recreationally with impunity. That's their agenda, and that is disturbing for any parent, any community leader, any local government leader. They should be appalled at that that idea, and they should be onto that, aware of that, and actively resisting that in the marketplace. Well, Shane Varco, your wisdom is on display for all to see today, or for all to hear. Uh, CEO at Dalgano Institute. Uh, I gave the dalganoinstitute.org.au website a little earlier. There's another one which is really, really a hard-hitting 
website and uh, especially for parents uh, to go to the nobrainer.org.au website. Is there a way you can subscribe to uh, receive some regular updates from nobrainer.org.au, Shane? Indeed, down the bottom of the homepage you'll find a subscription to our our monthly newsletter, e-newsletter update. Of course, we're updating our data on websites regularly. There's new data all the time. Our search engines, you just click in what you want to find and you'll find a myriad of articles on various things. Our YouTube channel, Neil, if I could promote that, really important. A lot of good stuff on there, particularly around the drug policy narrative. There's a whole playlist on that which was a, a, a nationally broadcast and internationally used uh, DVD series, which we've obviously digitised and put onto the platform. But it's been used uh, in the UK, in America, uh, as well for looking at the whole drug policy development and how it's been misused. And it's evidence-based and it's quite broad. And it's, we've put it into bite-sized chunks. There's about eight, uh, sorry, seven different chapters an uh, average of about 17, 18 minutes each. So they're not long, um, but that gives you a really good insight into drug policy in Australia and where it's going globally as well and how we can better use it to prevent harm, prevent the, the damage that's being done. And uh, there'll be listeners who can appreciate the value of a conversation like this today. Uh, it'll be available on a podcast uh, just a couple of hours away. If you want to access that, perhaps there's someone you can send a link to on a podcast uh, talking about this today. Shane Varco, CEO, Dalgano Institute. Thanks so much for taking some time to share your thoughts and heart with us today on 2020. Our pleasure as always, Neil. Thank you. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.